Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. Welcome to the FIC Focus podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the Chief Investment Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me today, we go off campus to Gregory Staples. He is the head of Fixed Income North America for DWS Investment Management. Then after we speak with Gregory, we will be going to Will Hoffman for our interest rate intro segment. All that on this edition of the FIC Focus podcast. Great. Thanks, Ira. It's a pleasure to be here today. So talk a little bit about what you do as a head of fixed income, what type of money you manage and, um, you know, in any styles that uh, you, you find particularly attractive at the moment. Sure. We've got a very established business managing on balance sheet assets for very large insurance companies. So we tend to be longer term fixed income investors, primarily in the investment grade market. But we also manage a fair amount of retail as well and other separately managed accounts. So my purview uh, it really encompasses uh, five different pods, high yield, investment grade, structured finance, municipals, as well as short-term liquidity. And I act as a player coach, act as a portfolio manager, as well as uh, overseeing the team. So, so what are the biggest differences between managing some of those, you know, long, um, you know, I, I don't know if you'd call them ALM or, or, you know, longer term insurance type money versus the more actively managed total return uh, type of funds? Is there, you know, uh, how different is the process between managing those two sleeves? Well, the under, under, underlying process is actually pretty similar. We do, uh, we're very much of a bottoms up shop doing a lot of fundamental credit research, but in terms of the objectives of the clients, it does differ. When you talk about the world of, uh, of mutual funds, 40 Act mutual funds, it does tend to be a lot more total rate of return. There are no constraints in turnover, and you're not um, measured as much against a benchmark as you are against a peer group. It's that old joke about you have to tie in your sneakers not to outrun the bear, but outrun your competitor. On the institutional side, it's, it's, we're very much specialized in insurance companies, so they have statutory accounting, which is a world of book gains and book losses and book yields. It's, it's measured much more with a long-term uh, investment focus, much uh, shorter term and much less turnover, if you will. So we want to make sure that we're investing securities that are going to be there in terms of their investment grade status or their yield going out a year or two or three to meet those objectives. Maybe we should start talking a little bit about the longer term, and then and then we can get back down to the relative value and and you know the shorter term um, financial management. When you're looking at the insurance companies, and and you talk about things like investing things at book value, and and it is longer term. You know, we did spend more than a decade with interest rates incredibly low, where you had even long-term interest rates, you know, 30-year yields under three percent. You know, has has that shifted any of the last 12 months with, you know, now actually getting some kind of yield? We had, you know, Treasury, presumably things like Treasury strip yields being above 4% briefly. Um, did, did that change or, or make things easier in that sleeve versus where we were, say, five years ago when, when interest rates were exceptionally low? Um, or or have things not changed very much because of the very long time horizons? Oh, Ira, it's changed so much. After five long years in the darkness, we're fi finally seeing the sunlight. And listen, compared to our European colleagues, where they were actually investing in negative yields, the United States wasn't that bad at, 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 as, as in, in comparison. But right now, we're looking at a world where 
as opposed to two years ago where our investment companies were looking at a 1% or a 2% long yield and it was repressed because it was lower than the rate of inflation. Now you're looking at a 4, 5, or even 6% yield on investment grade, and if they want to dabble into high yield, perhaps as much as 7 or 8. So we're very, very pleased. Um, we've heard it said elsewhere that investment grade bonds are back. Uh, we're seeing that. Uh, we Maybe in December, uh, January, it was a little bit of a rally that took some of the value out, but more recently, with what we've seen the backup of the 10-year Treasury close to 4%, it's become attractive again, and our, uh, our investors are very pleased by that. Now, how does that how does that work for an insurance company? Is it is it mostly you're investing new flows, or do you actually shift, um, you know, maybe uh, take advantage of of higher yields by getting rid of some lower coupon um, securities that that have you know aged a bit, or you know how, how do you, how does that work in terms of capturing some of the higher yields that we have today versus where you might have been forced to buy five, six, seven years ago when interest rates were significantly lower. I think it's coming from three places, and it's a little bit of all three. Of course, it's new business flows. If they're seeing new premium and wanting to invest that, they've got positive cash flows. It's portfolio runoff. If you've got a portfolio that's maybe got a five-year average maturity, it means by definition 20% of your portfolio is maturing every year, and you're reinvesting those cash flows presumably at, at higher rates. And, and also, I think it is portfolio shifting as well, that uh, if they've got a more conservative portfolio, perhaps more liquidity in the earlier period, or perhaps an investment in non-fixed income, they're rebalancing, moving over to the fixed income side. We have seen some changes, um, some selling off of, for example, equity positions, thinking perhaps that market is a little more fully valued, so the selling of equities to reallocate into fixed income. So it's all, of, all three of those combined that's, that's sourcing the cash that we're investing. Great. So let's talk a little bit about going back toward some of those other asset classes that you mentioned early on. Um, you, you know, it, when when we think about the shorter term, you know, where are I always get asked where where, where is the ten year yield going to be at the end of the year, uh, and, and what's our view of that? Um, so when we think about more of the the forty act mutual fund uh, space or or any any uh, separately managed accounts within more of the active management space. Um, talk a little bit about sector allocation and, and sector um, selection. So if, if you have to choose between, you know, investment grade and, and high yield in the corporate space, treasuries, long duration, short duration, and, uh, and, and say, you know, mortgages or asset-backed securities, you know, how, how do you, what, what's the way that you guys prefer to make that asset allocation decision? And then from there, the security selection more specifically within whatever asset class you, uh, you find most attractive. Sure. And of course, in, in most of our retail funds, they do have some implicit strategies. So it's not a go anywhere, do anything, although we do have uh, a, a good total rate of return that is a little more do anything, go anywhere. And our process really works with a, sort of a macro top down. We have what's called a, a CIO view, which we, we put together every quarter. It's sort of a long-term strategic view as to where we think the economy is going and where interest rates are going. We can be more nimble than that. We have a, a rates team that does uh, call, call rates on the fly. Uh, and, and do that. but So it's really, first of all, it's talking about our long-term interest rate and macroeconomic forecast. And right now we are talking about perhaps a, a weakening in the economy in the second or third quarter, like many. We're, we've pushed that off a little bit given some of the most recent data that looks a little bit hot, but we do think there's going to be a cooling off. And looking at year-end, we've got a forecast of, again, roughly 4, 4.10 in the 10-year uh, that looked a little silly just uh, two or three weeks ago when the 10-year was at 3.30, and now it's actually looking quite, quite plausible. And then over that, we layer what we think spreads are going to do, investment grade spreads. Right now, the Bloomberg index is 105 to 110. I think there could be a little bit of widening there in the high yield space, 430. I think there could be a little bit of widening there. 
So the portfolio managers can position themselves against sort of a benchmark or their peer group, whether they want to be a little bit more risked or less risked than that spread. And then the, the last piece is uh, truly at the QSIP or ticker level where we've got a very good team of analysts that are looking at each individual credit. Literally every bond that we put in our portfolio is being reviewed by an analyst, whether it's in an investment grade high yield or the structured finance team, giving relative value, um, looking for opportunities to swap in and out, and it's up to them to recommend more security selection to the portfolio managers that then have the ability to implement that or not, as the case may be, in their portfolios. So, so with the idea that we're going to have a slowing of the economy, but interest rates are still going to be reasonably high and, you know, for over 4% at year end, as I, if I heard you correctly, um, would would be interesting, you know, at least in my view, given if we had a significantly slowing economy. So, so does that mean that, that you know, being more defensive and, and moving um, toward, you know, more more treasuries or, or maybe even a, a cheaper structured product like mortgages or something like that might be, um, is, is something that a lot of your portfolios are, are thinking about right now to be a bit more defensive if we're going to see spread riding because excess returns are going to be poor um, and, and then, you know, try to re-engage in, in those spread products if we do go into a recession and you see, you know, a reasonable amount of spread widening. That's absolutely the case, and, and to be honest with you, actually spreads did come down, we think, a little bit excessively. We had a very strong rally basically from last October into January, and some of it was uh, merited and some of it not so much so to the point where we got in January as if the market was completely ignoring a recession, at least in terms of credit spreads, which was very odd because uh, the Treasury market was pricing in a recession. It's as if the two sectors weren't even talking to each other. So we were more cautious then. But uh, we do see spreads widening out a little bit here, and it's not necessarily because of the fundamentals. It's just because of the valuations, I guess because of flows, have tightened to the degree where it just doesn't represent value. We don't see a recession that's going to necessarily cause a significant deterioration in corporate credit quality. Uh, maybe you'll see a pickup of maybe 3 or 4% in high-yield defaults. But to be honest with you, corporate treasurers have had a very long period of time to prepare for this. It's as if the hurricane warnings came out some time ago, and they have and needed to put the plywood over the windows and secure everything. And I think they've done a very good job of doing that. Any corporate treasurer that hasn't prepared for this recession really is not, uh, should not be in his job, or her job, I should say. <laughs> Um, so, so when, when thinking about, uh, you know, the, your investment process, investment thesis, everyone is talking about, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and what they're going to do and how high the terminal rate's going to be. And then once they're there, how long they're going to stay there. Um, how important is that to your investment process for uh, probably not for the insurance names, right? That, that, that's certainly a longer term, but, but certainly for the more tactical allocations that you do uh, with, with the shorter term um, horizon assets. Is, is it, you know, do you really care if the Fed's going to hike to five and a quarter on the upper bound or five and a half? You know, how much does that matter? How much does it matter if, um, you know, cash is going to be, um, you know, be yielding something like above five percent. If you if you wind up looking at where say one year bills are right now, you're you're talking about a five percent return, which which in the last fifteen years is, would not have been a bad uh, a bad outcome necessarily for for fixed income, at least from a carry perspective. It, it absolutely does matter, of course, because it matters in terms of pricing in the real-time marketplace. You've seen a significant backup in yields decline in bond prices just over the past two or three weeks since that critical non-farm payrolls number came in the first week in February, 50, 60 basis points on the tenure, and that's significant in terms of price. So we do watch that. do think that it's very easy to get whipsawed. Uh, the market does, I think, in our mind, tend to overreact. They have got a recency bias 
moving around with the most recent data. For example, now it seems as if uh, the market's pricing inflation not being able to get under control. And we're talking about as much as a 560 SOFA rate um, with, with four more tightenings over the next uh, six months. And I'm not, wait, we're not quite sure about that. We do think that the economy is slowing. You can see that very palpably in some of the, the better data, the New York Fed's uh, weekly economic indicator shows a, a very steady cooling in the economy. Obviously, some pockets haven't done that yet. Uh, I think obviously the labor markets, the the, the, the non-shelter services, if you will, but ultimately we think that that will. There is more for the Fed to do. We don't discount that at all. I uh, do think that we get probably to five, either 505 or 530 in, in Fed funds, but after that, I think the Fed wants to be on pause. The last thing they want to do is turn around and pivot in the second half of the year. That's what the market was trying to press them to do earlier this year, and uh, the Fed pushed back and I think won that fight. Uh, but we do think that they want to hold, if you will, um, through the remainder of 2024 or 2023, whatever that terminal rate is, again, 505 to 530, probably not much more than that. What we pay attention to, though, is I would call not the terminal ceiling, which we've just been discussing. It's the terminal floor, meaning that when they're done with this tightening cycle and probably ease to, to take their foot off the brake a little bit, Think about the end of 2024. I know it seems like a long ways away, but it's where they ultimately want to get to is sort of the longer term rate. And we view that as, call it the terminal floor, where they, where they settle into. And it's a little bit of longer term inflation as well as the R star. And until fairly recently, both the Fed and the markets had an agreement, the Fed through their SCP, their, their dot plot, and the markets through forward pricing, that they'd reach probably about a 3% rate, that that's where the Fed funds would settle into at the end of 2024. With the non-farm payrolls number, that's ratcheted up more to three and a half to three and three quarters. But we use that as a, as a really long-term indicator as to long-term value. We think ultimately we work in a world where the yield curve is, is re-steepened, where you have, so let's just say, longer-term stable Fed funds at three, three and a quarter, two-year treasuries at three and a half, and probably 10-year treasuries stabilizing at three and three quarters to 4% in a more positively normally sloped yield curve. So th that's interesting, especially given how inverted the curve is right now. So, so you're, you know, pretty much. I think you and I have have similar expectations of how the yield curve will move. Maybe timing differences. Um, you know, it's interesting then if we think about this longer term. And obviously, you know, we we live in the real world where you know people ask us what what our opinion is every single day. But longer term, um, do, do you think that it's likely that we've seen um, the floor in rates. We obviously have now had a, a, a Will and Will Hoffman, my associate, and I were looking at this the other day. We're now um, three and a half um, standard deviations above the trend from 1986 to present in 10-year yields. So, so we can definitively say that the downtrend in, in uh, Treasury yields is, has been broken. Um, so, so do you see the the opposite occurring, where uh, we can wind up seeing an upward trend over the next, you know, three to five years in terms of uh, of interest rates after having spent, you know, more than a decade at zero effectively um, or or do you think we're maybe um, you know going to react some other way in the in the more medium term when you're thinking about you know kind of long-term um, uh, long-term investment horizons 
Well, let's, let's break that down. In the intermediate term, we do see some upward pressure in, in interest rates. Again, we've gotten, gone a long ways just in the past three weeks. But there's, there's some things that are going on that are a little bit more long-term secular. One is I think the, the Bank of Japan finally folds their cards and abandons yield curve control under, the, under Ueda, the, the new president of the, uh, the, the Central Bank of Japan. And that has been a source of uh, liquidity globally. And as that pulls back, I think it takes a little bit of the uh, downward pressure on interest rates globally. Um, we, we're seeing the continuing impact of QT, meaning the, the Fed has been reducing their balance sheet. Nominally, it was supposed to be $95 billion a month, but because mortgage prepayments have been less than that, it's a little bit less. It's only been about $400 billion so far, but it will start to bite, we think, in the back half of the year as that accumulates, and you'll see um, that the uh, money that's deposited at the Fed's reverse repo account and some of the bank reserves start to decline. Fed and banks will have to start bidding for reserves. They haven't had to do that yet, and that will put a little bit more upward pressure. And then also, finally, we are expecting to see a little bit of bumpiness in the debt uh, ceiling resolution. It's probably going to be a real white knuckle for a couple of days. But if they ultimately succeed in that, I think the Treasury has to go back in and replenish their bank account, if you will, with the issuance of a significant amount of Treasury bills. And if you know how that works, it means that basically that's liquidity that's pulled out of the, the system, either out of banks or out of RRP, and put into the Treasury's uh, general account at the Fed. And that's a removal of liquidity as well. So we think there could be liquidity removed from the system in the third and fourth quarter that could uh, lead to upward pressure in rates. Longer term, we agree with you. We've probably seen the bottom in rates. We think that experiment with negative rates has proven to be a little more difficult than, than seen. It's going to be a long time before the ECB and the Fed tries to engage something like that again. And also think that we're seeing some secular changes that uh, are really going to take away some of that downward pressure in interest rates that we saw. The, the decline in globalization. China is no longer going to be the lowest cost producer of whatever anymore. There's going to be a significant amount of onshoring. We're seeing industrial policy kick in with the uh, in Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. And I can tell you right now that chips produced by, by an Intel plant in, uh, I think it's Arizona, are not going to be lower cost than those that are produced in Asia. But in order to get that supply chain more robust, costs are going to have to be a little bit elevated. And that's a trade-off I think politically we're going to be willing to accept. And that means generally higher inflation longer term. That's great. That was Greg Staples. He is the head of fixed income North America for DW Investment Management. Greg, thanks very much for coming on FIC Focus. Great. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And with Greg leaving us, we will now go to Will Hoffman for uh, his question of the week. Uh, will, what question do you have for me today? Hey, Ira. Thanks for having me as always. So I actually have some, questioners, some questions from listeners today. Uh, I've got two for you. Hopefully we have time. So the first is on the average time the Fed will cut after they reach their terminal rate. Uh, as this seems to be the basis for some of the early cuts currently priced into markets, uh, could you talk a bit about the historical precedent for this and maybe how this time is different? So the uh, so, so that the range is actually pretty pretty wide. It's, it's between six months and 14 months uh, between the end of hikes until the, the the first cut, and large portions of that uh, have have come in in some cases um, because of of other crises that have occurred. So when we go back to the mid 1990s, for example, you had some interest rate cuts that were um, that occurred in in the early 90s um, because of um, of the tequila crisis where the Mexican um, Mexico was falling apart, so the, the Federal Reserve actually eased interest rates uh, very quickly, and then um, and then started hiking again soon thereafter, kind of to take back. And then it was only actually a couple of months uh, in between those uh, 
um, the, the end of, of those few give take back hikes until they started um, cutting very significantly and, and you could call it a cycle. So, so it, it has really depended, um, but the but the point is it has been as long as as uh, as 14 months and because of that um, you know it's it's not you can't say it's unprecedented that the Fed um, will stay at the peak now one of the other things that that's happened over the last 20 25 years in, in terms of central banking and and the way that Federal Reserves and other central banks globally have operated is um, they they tend to be, because they tend to be more proactive and also um, have forecasting, they, they tend to do things in a more measured way. Whereas if you go back to the early 1980s they were, or even the late 1980s, there weren't even statements that, you know, the, the Federal Reserve didn't even put out a statement after they, um, after they, uh, had a meeting, you'd have to look at the uh, at the Fed's balance sheet to determine whether or not they eased or or tightened monetary policy. So, um, so, so now things are are much more transparent, and because of that, I think um, it, they're going to be able to manipulate the yield curve and and uh, perform other actions that might be uh, somewhat easy in order to um, before they even have to cut. So, for example, one of the first items that they may do is actually stop. Um, uh, stop the runoff of the of their balance sheet. They might do that, you know, three months before they wind up actually cutting interest rates, just as a kind of a first relatively dovish action that they can take. And that signaling alone would likely uh, cause interest rates, and in, at least in the front end, to probably fall pretty aggressively as the market priced for for deep interest rate cuts. So the market winds up doing some of the work for the central bank in a scenario like that. Fantastic. Thank you for that. My last question is on real rate forecasting. Um, we had a listener who's hoping to hear a bit of a discussion on how uh, they can derive fair value on some of these real yields, maybe some of the components of the instruments, and maybe some pricing dynamics that you think market participants should be aware of. Oh my goodness, that that is a deep question. And I wish I had asked you what questions you were going to ask me prior to recording today. But uh, so so the the way that I look at real yields is um, so so just so listeners understand. So real yields are tend tend to be what we consider interest rates over inflation, and and we have instruments today that we didn't have 25 years ago, um, which are the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities or the TIPS market. So when you look at real yields today, and you can um, 10 year real yields right now are around one. And a half percent as we record here on the 23rd day of, uh, of February in, in 2023. So that means that, that you'll receive headline inflation plus 1.5%. Um, so so that's that's your real yield. Now, real yields historically, um, and, and again, we only have about a little over two decades of history of this, but real yields have tended to be influenced by, by, by several factors. And in particular, um, it winds up being uh, supply. So how much, uh, what is the deficit? So if higher deficit deficits mean you have higher real yields, lower deficits, you have somewhat lower real yields. Now that's broadly speaking has, has been the case. Second, obviously, is policy rate. So if um, if the Fed funds rate is very low, real yields tend to be very low. That's one reason why you had very significantly negative real yields during the period when the Federal Reserve had uh, cut the Fed funds rate to zero. And then 
Uh, and then finally, and, and I think this is underappreciated, it's just the expectations for market volatility. So how volatile are nominal yields going to be? Uh, it influences very significantly the um, that particularly shorter term tips yields. So when you look at like five-year tips yields, for example, um, if if implied volatility and, and realized rate volatility is very high, tips real yields tend to be a bit higher. And, and that makes sense as well, because even though you're trying to get a, a return over treasuries or, or excuse me, over inflation by buying tips, um, you also want a uh, want to be compensated for the potential volatility of those returns. So, so you know, the higher the volatility, the higher the yield. That's not necessarily true in nominal treasuries, because a lot of times you have very significant volatility in yields when, say, inflation expectations are very low, right? So what we call tips break-evens. So if inflation is expected to be in, exceptionally low, you might actually have lower nominal yields, but you can still have relatively high real yields. And, and you've seen that at different periods uh, in history as well, um, you know, for example, in, in the early 2000s, that was that was actually the case. Um, as we just talked about with uh, with Mr. Staples from from DWS, we have do have to keep in mind that we have broken a lot of the very long-term downtrends. So um, so when you look at those uh, long-term downtrends and the fact that we've broken them, I, I think that the question now becomes: Do our real yields going to fall back into um, into a range, maybe between you know one, half a percent and two percent, for example. That's that's what I think. Or are we going to wind up seeing real yields continue to climb along with nominal interest rates, um, where maybe you wind up seeing um, seeing interest rates fall back into the in early 2000s or or even late 1990s type of levels, which means that we could potentially see a much broader sell-off. Now, I don't think that that's the case personally, uh, in large part because I think a lot of the dynamics that existed prior to um, to the pandemic will probably fall back into place over the next couple of years. Um, but if I'm wrong, then um, th and we do have a lot more onshoring of of production and 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 the like because of the the um, uh, shifting in international trade dynamics, then th then obviously I can be uh, completely wrong and um, and we wind up seeing a more of a trend higher in, in uh, yields. So with that, Will Hoffman, thank you very much. On behalf of Greg Staples, we have been Ira Jersey. If you have any ideas for questions or topics you'd like us to, uh, to address on the FIC Focus podcast, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. And until next time, be well. <music>